HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. And today, let's call Olivia Mac McCool the lunch lady, but not that atypical vision of someone manning steam tables and scooping slop on the plastic trays in a cafeteria. Instead, McCool has made a career of making beautiful dishes as a food stylist, which leads her to transform how we look at our midday meal with lunch, published by WNP's Dovetail Press. This is a 10-week guide to reclaiming the most important meal of the day. And McCool reorganizes your pantry, cleans up your fridge, and preps you for Sunday shopping, enlivening the upcoming work week. So sad desk lunches be damned. Welcome to the show, Olivia. Hey, Michael. So we we have a lot other than lunch to talk about um, because I want to frame who you are, a New Jersey girl by way of North and South Italy. True. What is the biggest influence, or what is the biggest preconception of what being an Italian-American is in New Jersey, food-wise? Oh, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there's obviously lots of preconceived notions about Italian-Americans in New Jersey. There was a whole television show about it. Oh, I've heard of that one. (laughs) Yes. Well, so I... As I was telling you, my one of my fathers, I have two dads, one of my fathers is from southern Italy, one from the north, and we grew up with really a lot less of what you would call Italian-American food, more Italian food, which I'm not dissing either. I mean, they both have an equal place in this world, but, um, you know, Italian-American food is really its own thing in the sense of 
you know, especially in New Jersey, we've got Gabadil and Gabagol and... Oh, well, can you interpret those things for oh, me? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I yeah, am yeah. a translator? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I've done this many times for people. So Gabadil is actually cavatelli, which is a type of pasta, if you don't know. Um, Gabagol is capa cola. Yes, which... I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. I had this situation in a deli and the woman was asking and I'm like, I think it's an onomatopoeia for this kind of meat. Yeah, it's actually capicola. Yeah. <laughs> um, mozzarella, easy one. Uh, prosciutto, also an easy one. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's some big ones. I, I feel like with this language that surrounds uh, Italian American food in general, there's such a large conversation that happens within the Italian American community about food too, and y- your family is is. Uh, you know, a prime example of, of speaking ad nauseum about all the great feasts that you have, but while eating a meal, what you're going to eat for the next meal. Seriously, yes. <laughs> we, uh, so the first time that my now husband, Pat, the first time he ever had dinner with my family, which at the time consisted of my two dads, my sister, uh, maybe some random, you know, friends of my dad's. So we always have these big dinners. And the first time he came to dinner, he left dinner and he said, I have never been with a family that talks about food so much while they're eating food. I mean, it's, it's the only thing that consumes our conversations at the dinner table, which, you know, it, it is about the food we're eating and how good it is. It's about, well, who would do it a little better? It's about the last time we ate this food. It's about the next time we're going to eat it. It's about actually next time, let's introduce clams. Let's, you know, and... It's kind of all we talk about. I don't know if it's an excuse to not talk about other things, but who knows? You know? <laughs> well, this always being on the pulse or on your mind, uh, it only made sense that you went to Lake Cordon Bleu, that you found a career in food somehow. But did you expect that as a, at a young age? So the only thing I expected at a young age was all I knew was that I wanted to live in New York City. I wanted to be sophisticated. I wanted to throw dinner parties at a very young age. I knew this. I also wanted to stay out as late as I wanted to without any interference, but that's another subject. Uh, So at that time, I didn't know that I would have a career in food. I never really thought about what my career would be. When I uh, graduated from high school, I went to art school. I went to FIT and studied fashion and specifically textile design. Uh, And then while I was in college, my father married a woman And her, so it was my stepmother. My stepmother's stepmother uh, was and is a prop stylist in New York City. And, you know, I was uh, 19 years old, and she said, do you want to just help me out on set for, like, a couple bucks, extra bucks? I said, yeah, sure. So then I came on set, and I was on Tiffany Jobs and, you know, uh, big makeup ads, and it was really exciting. And I loved it. So when I graduated from college, I started working for her as her assistant, and I worked for her for five years, And one day she said to me, you know, I love you. You're great at this, but I know you don't want to be a prop stylist. I said, yeah, I know I don't. She said, well, you have to figure out what you want to do. So um, I had always loved food, and I was obsessed with eating. I was obsessed with cooking as a kid. I was obsessed with the Food Network. And so my whole family was like, Liv, go to culinary school. You know, you you should have always gone. So uh, I was fortunate enough because culinary school is very expensive. Um, I was really fortunate that my family was able to help me out 
and I went, I wanted to travel too. So I went to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris and I spent about six months there um, studying and eating <laughs> and drinking a lot uh, and, you know, living in Paris and how exciting that was. And I definitely, of course, I learned so much there because it's you're immersed with French technique all day, every day. But I have to say the bulk of what I know and the bulk of what you're going to read in the book is really, it sounds crazy, it's things I learned on the Food Network. <laughs> I was in, I was obsessed when I was a kid. All I would do, I didn't, I didn't watch MTV. I didn't watch Nickelodeon. All I wanted to do was watch the Food Network. And these women, Ina and and uh, Giada, like taught me. I mean, that's how I learned how to cook. And the other thing is, I grew up um, without a mom, so it was sort of uh, sink or swim in the sense of even though my my dads are very good cooks they're yeah. amazing <laughs> cooks but you know they're busy and they're men and and you know it was different so I you know I started cooking at a very young age well there's a big difference between being able to talk about food and being able to talk about it in a visual manner and that's what you yeah. do not only as a prop stylist but then parlaying that into food styling that's a whole other vocabulary language yeah. that you have to have with other people on set, a photographer, a creative director, how do you gain that lexicon? How do you gain that knowledge? So part of it is definitely instinctual. Um, I've always been really artistic, took every single art class possible in high school and grammar school, and obviously I went to design school. But mainly it's from assisting. So the next part of the story is uh, when I got back from Le Cordon Bleu, I kept working for that prop sales because I needed to make money. But we had met food stylists. I had met food stylists while working with her naturally on set. So I just emailed a bunch of food stylists that little did I know they were the best of the best. Uh, I worked for Susan Spungen for a while, who I'm sure you know. And I worked for Victoria Granoff for a, a very long while. And that experience is, it's invaluable. I mean, I was really lucky that especially Victoria really trusted me and let me do a lot of things, you know, so I was really hands-on, and there's just, you can't learn that any other way than by assisting and doing it, and I think food styling has become, or being a food stylist has become um, now like a household name in the sense of like people now know what food stylists are, and I don't want to say that, you know, there are there are some people on now with Instagram and that are food style. I'm, I'm doing air quotes for the people. Oh, we can yeah. feel it. You yeah. can feel it, yeah. Um, and that's all fine and well, but there's just uh, that assisting experience is nothing. You can't buy that. Yeah, you can't buy that. And it, it's absurdly invaluable in many ways because you also kind of vet what works and what doesn't rather than just replicate and emulate what works. Completely. And, and with that, I want to talk about another term, visualization, because we've talked about some of the visual aspects, but... What visualization is for me is what you've done in this book and what anybody who is a recipe developer does, that you have something in mind that you want to get to and use whatever foundational techniques you have to get there. But then there's the creative sense of not only how does it look, but how will people interpret this? And that's what I'm so impressed with by this book. Uh, let's talk about lunch for a second. Mm-hmm. I mean... A lot of people don't really talk about lunch. You know, they talk about what they ate for breakfast and where they went out for dinner. But lunch has always been this 
blasé thing, you know, perfunctory even. Um, why do you think lunch has been relegated for so long, and why is this kind of book a necessity? Well, because lunch is kind of the workhorse of the day. So, like, either you're eating lunch at your desk alone or you're hopping out to, you know, in New York, everyone, like, goes out to Sweet Green or whatever salad joint, right? So you're kind of shoveling it down and you're eating it alone. It's not too glamorous. And even if you go to lunch with somebody, right, you, you go to a ladies' lunch or something, oftentimes, especially in my life, it's work-related. So you're there kind of for a reason. Uh, and I think... You know, I mean, I'm a freelancer. I work from home a lot. So my lunch is often really, really good. And when I'm on set, even though a lot of the time lunch is provided, I like to bring my own lunch. Or on on sets that, uh, you know, I'm pretty friendly with the client and everything, I'll make everybody lunch. Even though it's a little bit of effort or more time. But I don't know. I just, I love that sitting down, the day stops. Even on set, I'm sure you agree. Like, I like to, everyone stop, let's sit down. And even if it's just 25 minutes, let's eat. I mean, it's very European of you. Very Italian of you. Yeah, it's true. You know, taking that time. It's so funny having just recently been to Italy and forgetting that there are certain times of the day where you can't go out to eat and can't get things done because everybody else is taking lunch. That's hard as a New Yorker, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's wild, but it also makes you step back for a second and take that time or reclaim that time for yourself. And again, this is what you're doing in this book. And I think the exclamation point on the title is, is not by mistake. You know, it's lunch. You're trying to shout this from, you know, the, the, the mountaintops uh, and be emphatic about how good lunch can be. And what's also interesting is lunch doesn't have to be cooked at lunchtime. Exactly. That's so that's the key, right? We're all super busy. Uh, You know, lunch needs to get made, you need to bring it, you need to eat it. But I find that so especially again with Instagram, people are always Instagramming their dinner or, you know, their drinks or whatever. I think that people could get really into Instagramming their lunch and being proud of it. Um, I when I was writing the book, Of course, I'm a food stylist, right? So I was thinking about how the food would look at the photo shoot when we shot the food. Uh, But also in the sense of I love to eat food that looks really beautiful and not not beautiful in a pea tendril or, you know, sprinkle of something kind of way. I mean, beautiful, like colorful, uh, that there's more than one color on the plate and that, you know, you eat with your eyes. And I don't see why... Every meal can't be like that with a little bit of prep, a little bit of time put in, you know, you organize yourself a little bit and then you can end up with lunch like this every single day. It's possible. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the 10 week guide to reclaiming your lunchtime and five delicious and healthy lunches in each section. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. 
Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Olivia Mac McCool. Is it interesting to hear that whole thing? Yeah, it is because it's new. Yeah. (laughs) It's how many weeks? Um, it's like a week and two days new. <laughs> yeah, we we'll talk about the fair that you had at your wedding. Uh, you know the spread of uh, Italian American food and fresh mozzarella pulling, if I'm if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. But let, let's talk about this ten week five recipe per week program that you have in this book. And I don't even want to call it a program. Um, it, it is it is an education because it really shows people how to. You know, find certain aspects of lunch and being able to uh, replicate those things in very different iterations. Um, you know, chapter one, chicken meatballs. Mm. Well, even before that, chicken stock. You know, taking the chicken and embracing that in five different ways. Uh, how do you do that for somebody who, you know, gets palate fatigue or gets tired of eating the same thing over and over how do you take that meatball and reinvent it so uh those meatballs specifically are really delicious uh if you buy the book that's the number one thing you should make uh but it was interesting to me when i was writing this book thinking about you know there's there's a there's a few lunch books out there there's a few lunch bowl books out there but each bowl is kind of um a standalone recipe, right? So they don't incorporate the ingredients from the the bowl before. And in reality, that's not how we eat and that's not how we cook. Uh, You buy things, you have them in your fridge, and you hopefully can make more than one meal out of them. So I give you, in each chapter, I give you a grocery list, and that grocery list is only what you need. And those fresh ingredients that you buy, I make a commitment to you that you're going to use them all by Friday. So there's no, you know, herbs rotting in the fridge at the end of the week. So then you get a Sunday prep, and it's about two hours of work, maybe less if you're fast. And then the rest of the week should come together in a breeze. Now, in the sense of that chapter one, you know, those chicken meatballs, they make an appearance in a noodle salad on Monday that has an amazing to die for fish sauce dressing then they make an appearance in i think it's tuesday in this soup right so you build this soup base you put it on the bottom of the bowl you layer a bunch of stuff like thinly sliced mushrooms like thin 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 things that will cook fast then you put in the meatballs and at work you put hot water on top to make a soup so even though it's the same chicken meatball you're not really thinking oh this is the same meal because it feels really different. There's different flavor profiles. Um, and there are things that we have highlighted. Uh, we, I mean, I'm just speaking of my lovely <laughs> the editor. Ro- the royal we. The, the royal we. <laughs> the we, I'm also speaking of my yeah. lovely editor, Muda, who helped me put together this book, uh, have highlighted that there are some things you make on Wednesday night. So just, like, just one or two recipes that you might make on Wednesday night to keep it fresh, you know. But um, I, I think... You know, yeah, program might not be the right word, but it is very formulaic in the sense that you're, the instructions are spelled out for you. You get exactly what you need, and then you get five awesome lunches. 
and it revolves around these three foci per week. So week two's quinoa, halloumi, beets. Um, there's a week that soba noodles, salmon, miso. But then sometimes one of the elements has been used up and gets swapped in. So th- this is where you start. But again, you get to show how you permeate off of that. How, you know, these are starting points. But they're certainly, it's like a choose your own adventure book. Yeah, and I, you know, those ingredients, um, I chose them because, A, a lot of them are very hearty, but at the same time, very healthy. Um, And the other thing is, I wanted to show people, in some instances, maybe they saw fish sauce in their supermarket, but they didn't know what to do with it. Or maybe they've heard of a certain ingredient, and they can get it in their supermarket, but again, they don't know what to do with it. And I think for me personally, when I'm writing and recipe development and my Instagram and everything, I think it's so valuable to someone to show them what they can do with what they already can get, right? So accessibility in this book is key. There's nothing in this book that you're going to have to travel to some city to find. I mean, you can find 99% of these things in any supermarket across the nation, or, you know, if there's one thing you have to order on Amazon, I, I tell you in the book, do it because it's worth it. And I would only include it if it's really worth it. What, what are some of those that you highlight? Um, one of the chapters, I think a few of the chapters have a lot of sumac in it. And I really like sumac. I think uh, it's something, uh, but a lot of supermarkets these days have it. Uh, Whole Foods definitely has it. Uh, but I think it's something that is really exotic, but not exotic tasting. I mean, it's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit sour. It's really beautiful, too. When it you is. Sprinkle. You yeah. know, it, it creates that visual. But, I mean, how amazing if you are not familiar with that and you start cooking with it and you're bringing your, you know, your flatbread lunch from chapter whatever into work and someone's like, oh, what's that? And you're like, oh, well, this is sumac. And I, I now know what it is and I now know what it tastes like and I know what to do with it now. I mean, but how do you do that same thing with the humble chickpea? Okay, yes, exactly. See, that's what's even more important to me is the humble chickpea, the humble lime, the humble lemon. I'm hoping that I'm teaching people what to do with those that might be a little different than what they've been doing or the the boring lunches they've been packing. There's a really good chickpea recipe in here. Um, It's this Moroccan-spiced chickpea stew that, like a few of the things in the book, can be made vegetarian, vegan, or you can use chicken stock, like I suggest, uh, to give more flavor. But the spices that you add to that stew, again, found in every supermarket, just might not be the combination that you would think to do or that you have been doing. There are other great flourishes. There's a Moroccan carrot salad. Um, There there are slaws. There are pickled beets uh there are seed sprinkles which you have brought here today and i'm having a hard time not having at the moment um what 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 are the new pantry items or new things that everyone should have in their fridge at all time to be able to have delicious lunches i think uh really wholesome grains i you know grains are a really touchy subject right now everyone has feelings about grains you know grains are real foods like quinoa, like farro, uh, barley. These are foods that if, you know, if you don't have celiacs and they don't bother you or whatever, they're good for you. They're, they're hearty. They fill you up. 
They don't spike your blood sugar, and they hold really well until lunchtime. That's the key as well. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, you and I were talking earlier about avocado oil. And that I often, in this book, I call for grapeseed or avocado oil in a lot of the recipes. And grapeseed's a little more um, uh, accessible. It's also less expensive. The reason why I love things like avocado oil, I don't think it tastes different. I don't think it necessarily even cooks better. But it's really a lot better for you. If you're going to pick a neutral oil to cook with, you know, if you don't want to cook with olive oil because you're cooking in high heat, it's really, uh, it's really healthy for you. It's a little more expensive. So that's why I give, so that's why there's a lot of options in the book because I know some things are more expensive than other things or less accessible. I mean, shopping in supermarkets, it's changed over the past decade alone. So you can go into a Costco and get nice organic olive oil in bulk, raw almonds, you know, really good things. So you spend your money there and you save money for other flourishes, you know, like that avocado oil. But you also talk about superfoods like fermented vegetables, uh, turmeric, and one that I didn't know, which was cholera, I can never say it, the one that the chlorophyll powder, the algae, um, cholarella. Chlorella? Yes, that's the one. Butchered that well. Well, so again, so superfoods, I like, I like using that word. I know it's, I don't know if it's so mainstream or overused, but a lot of the foods I have in the book are superfoods, and that's why I've put them there. Because again, back to kind of why lunch is so important, this meal, you really need your bang for your buck because you ha- it's the middle of your day. You know, if you work at an office or, you know, you have meetings later, you've got to have energy. We've all done it. Like you've all um, caved for the cheeseburger and then you feel like you're dying 30 minutes later. Like you need to run home and take a nap. Um, But anyway, back to superfoods. I I included a lot of that stuff because this is the the meal you should be uh, fitting all your healthy foods into. And I have a lot of nuts, a lot of seeds in the book. Um... A lot of really good fats, which I I know they're not fats are not really considered superfoods, but for me they are because my body really reacts well to a lot of good quality fat. Um, quinoa, like I mentioned, beets. To me, beets are incredible. I love the way that they taste, but I love that you know they're really liver cleansing, and uh, which I I need anyone <laughs> anyone listening to this podcast that knows me knows I need the liver cleanse. Uh, and they're they're full of you know iron and and any of these foods that are really colorful. You mentioned the Moroccan carrot slaw. I mean that's like a beta carotene bomb that goes off at lunch, which is amazing. And this is this is what I was going for. You know, it's to pack as much healthy quote unquote food into your lunch. But again, this book isn't about diet fads. It's about delicious things. And I want to talk about. The worst lunch of all time. Not your worst lunch, but I think historically one of the worst lunches of all time may have been Thanksgiving. Because <laughs> you see depictions of that, uh, pictures, not actual pictures, but it's always during the daytime. Like, I've never seen it referenced as a dinner thing, even though I think Americans try to celebrate it as early dinner. In my mind, it's a lunch, and it's a terrible one at that because it's antithetical to everything you're talking about and teaching in here, and you are stuck on Thanksgiving right now as a food stylist. Yes. In my world, it's been Thanksgiving over and over again, like Groundhog's Day. 
Uh, I have been cooking turkeys and stuffing and doing it while it's 80 degrees outside. Um, but I agree with you. So it's funny, actually, my family, we don't do it earlier in the day. We're, we're, we're late eaters. We like to eat late. So Thanksgiving dinner is always pretty late for so American when, when standards. when do you get your nap in then? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there is no nap. That's, that's just sleeping. Um, but Thanksgiving is a prime example of when you eat like that, how you feel afterwards. And it's fine on Thanksgiving because there's football and couches and whatever. But you can't, you can't afford that on a work day. And these, all the lunches in the book, you're right. They are really healthy, but they're also super delicious. I don't, I, I'm quite, I consider myself a pretty healthy eater. I care about health and I care about wellness, but I only eat delicious. You know, like I'm only going to make something that's amazing and tasty and salty and, you know, delicious. So I don't sacrifice taste for that. And we were joking around about Thanksgiving before and about how my favorite part is the day after sandwich, the lunch. And we won't let you go on that diatribe about why you hate sandwiches. (laughs) But I mean, that is the only lunch thing that really comes out. It's reheating mashed potatoes and having that John Alden, you know, turkey stuffing cranberry sandwich. So... It, it is very different than giving somebody a week's plan, five different meals based off of very similar base ingredients. Um, another event in your life, lots of food, was your recent wedding. And I, I, I want to talk about that just to, you know, th- there is lunch, which is supposed to fuel you and be this, you know, episodic thing that you have every day. But what do you do in, in an event-like setting such as a wedding? Do you have those same rules or ideologies about what to serve and what to eat? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Not only, yes, my wedding, I'm a big entertainer as well. I love entertaining at home. And, and some of the rules go out the window. But at our wedding, we had this great caterer from New Jersey called the Brownstone. They're very Italian-American. You know, we had wheels of Parmigiano. We had tons of prosciutto, uh, goat cheese stuffed, uh, squash blossoms. But I think the highlight of the entire cocktail hour, and a lot of the wedding guests would agree, we had a guy pulling, making and pulling fresh mozzarella and handing little bundles of it warm to people it when it when he handed it to you it was warm and if anyone has gotten married you have had a wedding in the moment you're you're laser focused on other things and the food you know you've got all these guests but my my girlfriends who are so amazing they kept handing me plates of this warm mozzarella I, I must have eaten my body weight in it it was amazing the food was awesome at our wedding it yeah. was really fun any leftovers that you then converted into lunches you know the next day that's what my husband and I said. I wish we had the leftovers from the cocktail hour right now. That's what we wanted. No, we had a bagel brunch, which is also uh, classic New Jersey. I mean, if you haven't had bagels in New Jersey, in my opinion, you haven't had bagels. But we had a bagel brunch, which is definitely not in the rules for me usually. <laughs> Refined carbs, no. <laughs> no, that's why you have the lunch book to go back to your work week Monday through Friday got to bounce back exactly well everyone should bounce over to wherever you can buy books and get lunch and that is with an apostrophe from olivia mac mccool um it is a fascinating array of beautiful lunches that you can not only you know eat with your eyes but 
eat and feel satiated and they're just absolutely delicious and i'm gonna dig into that seed sprinkle very soon thank you again for being on You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkiel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Whole Foods, Music by Cookies, and Matthew Patterson for engineering. Cheers. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.